Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. Today, we'd be sipping on another <laughs> another astrological coffee because <laughs> we're just predictable at this point. Um, I found this on Amazon searching for craft cock- <laughs> cockies. I can't have that. Um <laughs> Uh, craft coffees, not craft cocktails. Um, it is called Lunar Coffee Lab, and it's the cutest little packaging. It has like one of those little science beakers, but it has a little moon on it. I love it. I love it. It's so cute. It's just so sweet. Um, I am drinking. Well, I wanted the Indonesian blend. I think it was because it's low acid, but they uh, were not available for me uh so i chose the mexico blend which is honey processed i don't know what that means but it's really good so process your coffee with honey everybody (laughs) um i got the ethiopia one because it was the only eight ounce one that they had and i'm not mad about it (laughs) i'm not mad about But anyway, everybody should try it out. It's on Amazon. They do mostly have just four-ounce bags, which I got four-ounce. Erica got eight-ounce. So it's really good to just be able to try it. I think they source from a lot of different, like, local farms in their area because the packaging will say, like, sustainably grown or women-run farms. So I would just check them out. It's real fresh. Real good. Thor is choosing violence today. I'm trying to get him to come up here and just sit behind me so that he's not dicking around. But What's he digging for in the hardwood? No, dicking around. Not oh. dicking. <laughs> like, <laughs> he does dig on the hardwood, though. What's he looking for? What? I, I don't know. I, I wish I could tell you. Digging for treasure? Uh, I guess so. Maybe there's some ghosts in here. Excuse me, he's knocking on the door. Violence. <laughs> um, we did just want to give a quick thank you to you guys for several different things. One is for your patience, as always. Um, well, Allison was a bit under the weather. Um, we appreciate you guys allowing for us to be flexible. And we also wanted to thank you for 25,000 downloads. Yes, thank you guys so much. I had the cocoa, but I'm good now. I'm a little stuffy still, so you're just going to have to work with that. <laughs> this was my fifth time having the cocoa, so insane. I am a government experiment at this point. <laughs> Please call the authorities. I would like to talk to a manager. Uh, it's rude at this point. And I want to say, not last week, but the week before, so like the week that we... We would have said this last week if we had an episode, but we got the most weekly downloads that we'd ever gotten before. So that's incredible. Thank you guys so much. That is so fun. Also, I know that we gave you guys an update about Lori Vallow's son, but if you have not watched the documentary on Netflix about her, you have to. It's really good. Um, And then the other thing I wanted to touch on is just 
everywhere right now. A long time ago, not a long time ago, but I feel like it was a long time ago, there was a giant true crime podcast called Serial. I'm sure you've heard of it by now. It was about the murder of Heyman Lee. She was strangled to death, and they said that it was her boyfriend at the time, Adnan Syed. He was sentenced to life in prison, and he actually just got the conviction tossed out. So that is a huge piece of true crime news. If you haven't listened to Serial or The Case, I highly recommend it. I even got my husband, who does not listen to these kinds of things, to listen to that. About five years ago when we picked up Gus, my sweetie. Um, I know that was our our road trip podcast that we listened to. Wow. Um, Anyway, he served 23 years in prison for this, so that is wild. He is now getting out. Yeah, and it was the prosecution that moved to vacate his sentence. Um, This happens, I believe they said that there were two new suspects that they were looking into, so um, just the evidence wasn't there. Yeah, and if you listen to the podcast, I'm just like not so sure the evidence was really ever there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that was like the consensus around the board when it uh, came to the that case. Yeah, so listen to Serial for yourself and see what you think. But he is now getting out of jail from a life sentence. That is pretty spectacular for him. And I did so Lori Vallow, I need to watch that documentary. Wow. But I wanna say the charges against him were dropped. Yes. So yeah, I guess we'll keep you guys updated on that front too. And then last week when I thought we were gonna have an episode (laughs) before I got Coco, I told you guys that This case had a little bit of a spooky, it's not a spooky case, but it has a spooky element. I didn't want to dive into spook. Just like dabbling, just going to dip. We're dabbling in spook right now because I know some people did vote that it was far too early, but majority of you didn't. (laughs) Majority of you were like, yes. I'm ready. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> um, but today we are going to talk about the serial killer Charles Albright. Oh. He is known as the eyeball killer. Ew, I don't want to go through this. Guys. Do you have a thing with eyeballs? I have a thing with eyeballs. I. They just, they freak me out. <laughs> like, I can't. Uh, I feel like Vampire Diaries and Game of Thrones, there's a lot of eyeball injuries, and I look away every time. I can't do it. Like, if I was one of those people who had to wear contacts, I wouldn't be able to do it at all. I can't. I agree. They freak me out. They freak me out. Yeah, I can't put contacts in. I've tried every Halloween. I just end up editing my photos to make my eye a different color. (laughs) Because I just truly can't put them in. That's Um, kind of iconic. Yeah, so if you ever see a Halloween photo of me and I have different colored eyes, that's just my editing skills. It's not contacts. Um, Wow, I just totally outed myself there, but (laughs) it's true. I am the editing queen. But yeah, Charles, let's get into him. 
Charles Frederick Albright was born in Amarillo, Texas in 1933 and adopted when he was just three weeks old by Fred and Dell Albright. Fred was a grocer and Dell was a school teacher. The Albrights lived in a all-white middle-class neighborhood in Oak Cliff. According to the story that Dell later tells Charles, his birth mother was a really wonderful law student. She was 16 years old when she got pregnant with him. She was secretly married to another student. And when the girl's father found out, he demanded that she get their marriage annulled and give up the baby for adoption. Otherwise, he would cut off his daughter from the family. So obviously, she decided to give away the baby. According to an in-depth feature done by Texas Monthly, Dell was a really caring mother, but she was also like not <laughs> a really caring mother at all. For example, so, so sweet, she used to keep goats in the backyard so that she could have her children drinking goat's milk, which she said was better for them than cow's milk, which is an extremely nice thing to do to make sure your children are, you know, well taken care of. Uh, something that was not so, so sweet was when he was less than a year old, Dell put him in a dark room as punishment for chewing on her tape measure. Oh. He... Yeah. <laughs> when he wouldn't take a nap, she would tie him to his bed. And when he wouldn't drink his milk, she would spank him. So the spanking, I get, at the time was like a big thing. But he's not a year old yet. He's probably teething. So sorry that he decided the measuring tape was something to chew on. You don't just... You don't just do that. Yeah. As a soon-to-be mom, no. I'm glad you know. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm learning. <laughs> learning what not to do. <laughs> Each morning before the school bus arrived, she had him practice piano for at least 30 minutes. She taught him reading, writing, arithmetic, so much so that he moved up two grades in elementary school. So when Charles was 11 years old, his mother enrolled him in a taxidermy course after she caught him killing small animals. We all know that the killing of animals at a young age is a red flag. Maybe even the red flag. <laughs> Maybe even the red flag. Yes. Uh, it gets worse. So she showed him how to use all the tools, the knives used to cut the skull, the little spoon to scoop out the brains, Ew. the scalpel um, to cut away the eyes from their socket. And then there was like forceps to pull the eyes out. I don't know. Everything's gross. I'm disgusted. I think we should end it right here. <laughs> At 11 years old, and that's where we're ending the case. <laughs> Yeah, so not good, but she even skinned the first bird for him, teaching him how to not cut too deep. So that so sweet of her for making sure he knew all those good quality um Oh, yeah, skills. she's a great teacher. So Charles spent hours doing his taxidermy courses. He was stuffing things, mounting birds, making them as lifelike as he possibly could. Then he just 
it, it was the eyes for him, you know? It's the eyes for me. He he used to go to the taxidermy shop and stare at boxes and boxes full of fake eyes. Owl eyes, eagle eyes, deer eyes. He loved how they, like, gleamed. He wanted to, like, collect them. You know how, like, you know, like, you collect things when you're younger. Like, I collected Beanie Babies. He wanted to collect taxidermy eyes. And that was, like, his his thing. Loved a good eyeball. Um, I will <laughs> just say, this day and age, that is probably where you would send them to therapy. But let's just see how this goes. <laughs> let's. Let's. So Dell would not let him have any of the eyeballs. She said that the eyes were too expensive and she just wanted to find a better, cheaper way to get the job done. So she opened her sewing kit. She would get like little buttons and stuff and would sew things on and then they would display them in their china cabinet in front of the house. He was known as the most good nature, eager to please child. He by who? <laughs> by like everyone. Everybody said he could just do like anything. That he could name all the constellations in the sky. He could catch snakes without getting bitten. He performed tap dance routines on stage at like a famous theater, the Texas Theater. Even one of his childhood friends said Charlie was like a Pied Piper to the rest of the kids. We always wanted to see what he would do next. He was just so damn fun. He should have held their breath with that one. <laughs> so even though Charles performed really well in school, he began a little bit of a criminal activity as a teenager. Right after high school, he enrolled in North Texas State College in Denton. But by the end of his freshman year, he was arrested for being a member of a student burglary ring that broke into a couple different stores, stole several hundred dollars worth of merchandise, and Charlie swore he stole nothing. He said the other boys had asked him to keep some things in his dorm for them, and that's how it went, and that's why he got caught. But I just don't believe that. <laughs> He just got caught, and he was like, no, no, I was just holding on to these things for everybody. Anyway, his overly protective mother, Dell, went to the store owners and tried to reimburse them for what was taken. She tried to persuade the judge to let her act as Charlie's lawyer. She even asked if she could take his place in prison, which, ma'am, that's not how this works. So he went to prison for a year. Spent his 18th birthday there. And after that, Charles attended Arkansas State Teachers College, where he studied anatomy with the intention of becoming a surgeon. So he's still very interested in cutting things open, which is a bit concerning uh, due to his childhood. Not that anybody wanting to become a surgeon is concerning but if you have a childhood where you kill things to cut them open that's not good so he ended up being president of the french club he was the business manager of the yearbook a member of a school choir 
He was on the football team. He even signed up for a drawing course, and the art professor was just baffled by his looks that he made him the class model. So everybody is really in love with Charles. They think he's just the jack of all trades, the hottest boy in town. But in a little bit of a tale of foreshadowing, he wasn't the perfect little student. He was keen on, you know, doing a prank or two. But it was when he cut out the eyes of his ex-girlfriend's photographs and pasted them all around campus uh, that we... It's just a bit alarming. It became a Wait, bit... Wait, he cut what? <laughs> he cut the eyeballs of his ex-girlfriends out of photographs. <gasps> Ew! Yeah. So that was alarming. Uh, Charles was kicked out of school after being caught in possession of stolen goods, which is what he went to jail for in the first place before he went to this school. Um, he later forged documents saying that he had earned his degree. Now we're just not telling the truth here. So throughout his adult life, Charles Albright would alternate between, you know, having this normal, straight and narrow life and then you know, his life of crime. Bit of a double life here. He did end up getting married and having a daughter, which kind of gave him that whole everyday suburban dad look. But he also was tacking on the arrests. You know, theft, forging documents and checks. He was just not doing well on that front. In 1985, he pleaded guilty to sexually molesting the preteen daughter of a family that he met through church. Uh, that escalated. Uh, yeah. So. And he had his own daughter at this time. Yeah, he sure did. Even with all of that, all of that news that I just let you ingest, Charles was described by many people who knew him as just the portrait of happiness. He was untroubled, troubling to no one. They said he was kind of a Renaissance man, fluent in French, Spanish, a painter, able to woo women by playing um, like classical piano music, um, reciting poetry. Like he was just like that B for everybody who clearly couldn't see past his facade. On the morning of December 13th, 1990, Dallas police found a woman around 156 pounds naked except for a t-shirt and a bra, which had been pushed up over her breasts. Her eyes were shut. Her face and chest were badly bruised. Apparently, the killer had thought it was best to, you know, beat the crap out of her before shooting her with a 44 caliber bullet into her brain. A police officer on the scene immediately recognized the woman as Mary Pratt, age 33. She was a prostitute in the area of the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. While it was not unusual for this to happen or people to find, you know, prostitutes beaten up in this area, um, a resident of the neighborhood was, like, so horrified that they saw the body and rushed inside and brought, like, a little sheet to put over her. So that was sweet of them. While performing her autopsy, medical examiners discovered her eyes had been carefully removed. 
There were no eyeballs, no tissue, like no nothing. Mary Pratt's eyes had been cut out and removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were left undisturbed. This was not an operation that's like you're taught in medical school. Yeah, no. (laughs) So the killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure any of the adjoining skin, and then cut all major, all six of the major muscles holding the eye into the socket, as well as the, like, rope of the optical nerve, and then, you know, keep the eyelids shut. <laughs> so, I, I, that is just incredible. I have no idea how that even works. And it's disgusting. After the death of Mary Pratt, Officer Regina Smith was patrolling the area with her partner, John Matthews, when she noticed one of the regulars, Veronica Rodriguez, who was typically, you know, she didn't care. She would flag down potential clients even if the cops were watching. She just was always in that area. They knew who she was. Usually when she spotted Officer Matthews, she would lean over uh, the car and, you know, kind of show her cleavage a little bit, saying, hi, to an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, she had been arrested for prostitution like a num- numerous amounts of times. Once when she was nine months pregnant, actually, as Officer Matthews pulled the squad car alongside Veronica, Officer Smith rolled down her window and she noticed that Veronica had a pretty nasty gash on her forehead and what looked like a thin knife cut across her neck. And so Officer Smith was obviously like, what happened to you? And she just was like, don't arrest me. I almost got killed. So... Veronica told the officers that the previous night she had been picked up by a truck driven a long way south to a field, and then she was raped. She said the man was white. He tried to kill her, but she escaped and ran towards a house. The man at the house just happened to be someone she knew, so that's how she got away. Two days later, on an afternoon drive past the Star Motel, Matthews and Smith saw Veronica again. She was sitting with a balding middle-aged white man in the cab of an 18-wheeler, so a truck, a white man. They were like, is this the guy who tried to rape and kill her? So Matthews went to one side of the truck to get Veronica and escort her to the squad car. Smith went to the other side to speak to the man. She asked for his driver's license, and he showed it to her. His name was Axton Schindler. He lived at 1035 El Dorado. When Smith ran Axton's name through the computer, she came up with nothing. He had some unpaid parking tickets or traffic tickets, so they didn't really think anything of it. And then suddenly, Veronica just, like, started shouting, and she was like, oh, don't arrest him. He's the man who saved me from the killer. That's him. So he said he'd known her for years. She was just giving – he was just giving her a ride to the motel. He didn't protect her from any killer. He didn't have any sex with her. He – was just a long-distance truck driver doing her a favor. Um, But Veronica insisted he was the one who saved her. So the officers kind of decided she was probably lying because, you know, she did tend to do drugs here and there. So they were just, like, chalking it up to, you know, it just didn't happen. So they carted her off to jail for prostitution and uh, had Axton in for unpaid tickets. This will all become more clear why that story made made sense in all of this. 
soon. Almost two months later on the day, on the morning of February 10th, 1991, the body of 27-year-old sex worker Susan Beth Peterson was discovered on the same road as Mary Pratt. Like the previous victim, she was found nearly nude and died of a shot to the head because her body was discovered on the other end of the road just outside city limits. It was not in their jurisdiction anymore. It was for the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. So a detective named Larry Oliver, who had not heard about the Pratt killing, was called to the scene. And the same scenario unfolded. Oliver accompanied the body to the autopsy room, where the pathologist began to, you know, do the standard examination. The pathologist opened one eyelid, then the other, and then motioned for Oliver to come closer to the table. And there you have it. The woman's eyes had been expertly cut out. When the pathologist mentioned that the Dallas Police Department had similar case just two months earlier. This is when Oliver did some checking around. Within 24 hours, he traveled to the police department's homicide offices to see John Westphalen. Soon, there were meetings with sergeants and lieutenants and with the chief in charge of homicide. Police officials were deliberating, you know, trying to avoid the phrase serial killings to describe what was going on. Um, they just kept referring to the killer as a repeater. While police never released details of the murders, news spread about the killer, who was dubbed the Dallas Ripper. And then they also gave him the name the Dallas Slasher. That was the press, not the police department. And then there was Veronica Rodriguez again. She was telling a lot of people, reporters, other prostitutes, plus the officers, um a number of stories since the killings began. At first, she said she had witnessed Mary Pratt being shot. Then she said she had met a man who had bragged about killing her. Then she said she knew nothing at all about Mary Pratt's death. And then she was talking about her own rape in the South Dallas field. She no longer said that the killer was white. She said that he was Hispanic now. Um, she said that he made a he may have even been black. Almost everyone who spoke with her thought she just had like brain frog <laughs> brain frog brain fry from drugs. So the only thing that bothered Officer Matthews was that Veronica had never changed her like basic story about being attacked. Usually she would forget whatever story she had been telling them the day before. That was kind of posing the question, did someone really try to kill her in the field? Could the man who supposedly saved her, Axton, know who the killer is? Or could Axton have something to do with the killing himself? Could it be that the real reason Veronica was changing her story was that she was afraid? So Officer Matthews and Smith didn't really know what to do next. They had already told the homicide division that Veronica claimed to have information about Mary Pratt. They had mentioned the attack and the possible Axton Schindler connection. Uh, with that, they figured they had done their job. It would have been out of line for the young officers to cross into like homicides territory anyway. They're not going to go in and conduct their own murder investigation. But later, when question 
homicide officer John Westland said he never got those officers' tips about, you know, Axton Schindler, about Veronica knowing anything regarding Mary Pratt's death. He said that with all the phone calls, messages, reports flooding in, the name Axton Schindler never crossed his desk. So we're getting a little bit of misinformation here. Is he a suspect? Is he not a suspect? They had pretty much three questions that they needed to answer. One, why is this killer going after prostitutes? Two, why were both of the bodies dumped on the same street? And then, obviously, number three, why are their eyes being cut out? So some theories that they were trying to come up with was that maybe the killer had gotten AIDS from a prostitute and this was out of revenge. Maybe he believed the old superstition that a murderer's image always remains on the eyeballs of the person he kills, which I've never... Maybe he was just a fucking weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I've never heard that saying before. It's not, like, I've never heard that. Um... Maybe he believed a dead person's eyes would follow him forever, or maybe the killer took the eyeballs to fuel some sexual fantasy, which the fact that that's even a theory makes me want to vomit and die. Yeah. Like, eyeballs, really? Bleh. There's also the theory that maybe he wanted to eat them or cook them, so here I am with cannibalism once again. Oh, God. The only thing that anybody really knew was that he obviously came out at night. He was strong enough to drag people in and out of cars, and he had some kind of surgical skill. They were also saying that he probably needed a well-lit room to do his surgery, and I'm just sitting here thinking, like, does that mean he had to drive them to some location to do this and then bring them back? And, like, what was the whole situation? You know? I don't know. I also just like wouldn't put it past him to not be like following all of the rules and regulations for surgeries. Like <laughs> I don't think he cared to find the proper lighting. Or he was working with what he had. Yeah, he just was skilled, I suppose. So the killer's third victim was found on March nineteenth, nineteen ninety one. Her naked body was propped up against a tree on a residential street across from an elementary school. Poor choice in placement there, sir. Um, her name was Shirley Williams. She was forty five, and she had been shot in the head. There was a broken blade of an exacto knife that was found embedded in the skin around her right eye, which. This is just sloppy, if, like, if you're getting that. Like, we went from only prostitutes, only in this one area, very skilled, very clean, to a residential street by a grade school with an exacto knife left in the head. So, like, something... on to him now, so... He's freaking... He tweaking out. The autopsy on Shirley Williams' body would show that the surgery had been hurried, obviously. The broken tip of an exacto blade was found embedded in her skin above her right eye, as I said. But there were still no witnesses, no murder weapon, no fingerprints. The killer had now murdered a different um, race, so that was also different in this one. And he had moved locations. 
Police began interviewing sex workers in downtown Dallas about any suspicious incidents or violent customers they may have encountered in the months around the murders. A woman named Brenda Smith told police that she had recently escaped a violent John after spraying him with mace. Veronica Rodriguez claimed that she had been raped and nearly killed by a white man in South Dallas, which we already know. Uh, this was near the Mary Pratt crime scene. So when the detectives looked into the address on Axton Schindler's license, uh, they found out that Schindler rented a house from a deceased Fred Albright, which is how they eventually found Charles Albright. After Fred's fatal heart attack in 1986, Charles inherited at least $96,000 along with all of his parents' homes and properties in South Dallas. His friends said it was for sentimental reasons, but I don't know. They said he kept the property in his father's name, and he wanted to bring in some extra money, so he rented out one of the tiny little homes to a truck driver named Axton Schindler. Charles had met Schindler through a female friend. Um, she said he wasn't a bad fellow, so he let him stay. A deputy recalled hearing Charles Albright's name on the tip line from someone who said that her friend was the victim Mary Pratt. Uh, Mary Pratt had briefly dated Charles Albright. This woman said, you know, Mary dated this guy who was obsessed with eyeballs. He had a large collection of exacto knives in his house. Uh, this just kind of sounds like it could be him. So, yeah, super weird how that connection happened. I guess in the early 80s, Mary Pratt lived in South Dallas, where Charles Albright's parents had invested in cheap rental properties. So at the time, Charles was temporarily living in one of the rental houses. He had a brief fling with one of Mary's friends, and that's what brought him to Mary. Other prostitutes say that when Mary um, kind of got into the prostitute game, Charles became one of her customers. She said... Mary told them that his name was Old Man Albright, and he was a good guy, willing to pay a little more than the going rate. Soon, Charles was, you know, making his rounds with some of the girls. He, it was weird. He had, like, a platonic relationship with them. He would just, like, pick them up, talk to them, take them to get a hamburger, drop them back off. Some, sometimes he never attempted sex at all, but... Both women later identified their attackers as Charles Albright, even though Veronica decided to refuse to testify against him. Police arrested Charles Albright on March 22nd, 1991. He made his... I know. <laughs> he was living as a carpenter and living with his girlfriend at the time. He was a very well-known customer to many of the sex workers in Dallas, as I mentioned. During a search of his home, police did end up finding that stash of exacto knives that the woman explained was there. Uh, they found a copy of Gray's Anatomy <laughs> and at least a dozen books on true crime and serial killers. Never forget when I was in eighth grade and I thought I wanted to be a surgeon, so... 
I took Grey's Anatomy out from the library and was like trying to read it. And I would like literally bring it to every class and be like reading it and not paying attention. The book was so hard. I'm pretty sure I only got through like 10 pages. I love that. I used to do online like virtual surgeries. Just for fun. Well, they were only knee surgeries. I would only do knee surgeries because that's no eyes. (laughs) No eyes, just knees. So if there's a serial killer going around. Are you trying to figure out how to do it on yourself? I think so. I honestly was like, (laughs) I just got to fix my own knee at this point. (laughs) Um, There were hair fibers found in his truck that also connected him to all three murders. Uh, The murder weapons and missing eyeballs were never located. Um, that really makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to think about. That's my thing. What, where were they? Where were they? I mean, where were they? Did he eat them? Do you think he ate them? No. He loved them it's too not much. Like, it's not like they'd just be like laying around. Like you would keep them in jars, right? At first. He liked to like, look at them. He like wanted to collect eyeballs. What would you, what do you do with that? Um, Charles's trial began in late November of 1991. It was heavily on circumstantial evidence. Prosecutors were ultimately forced to dismiss charges against Charles for the Mary Pratt and... Wait, how was the evidence circumstantial if they literally found DNA evidence linking him to three murders? That's wild. Well, they never found the murder weapons and they never found the eyeballs, but they did find exacto knives. Obviously, that was like. A man was eating them. I know. I don't. Like, I have an exacto knife in my house. Like, everybody has them. Maybe not a collection of them. But. And then the other one was. I mean, everybody knew that he had frequented the area and was. And had those women in his car. So maybe. That was it was all just circumstantial. They didn't have like hard murder stuff. <laughs> so prosecutors were ultimately forced to dismiss the charges against Charles for the Pratt and Peterson murders. However, he was found guilty of the murder of Shirley Williams and sentenced to life in prison. He was incarcerated at John Montford Psychiatric Unit in Lubbock, Texas. And he ended up passing away in August of 2020. So he is no longer with us. And that is the case of the eyeball killer. Disgusting. The whole eyeball thing was my spooky, my little spookiness. You done spooked me. I did. I knew it. I knew I'd spook you. My voice sounds terrible and I'm so sorry. Wow. Did you just hear my stomach growl? Girl, if you need to eat and take care of yourself and my baby, <laughs> my triple Capricorn. Yeah, your triple Capricorn is a hungry boy. I just gave birth to my second child in Sims is a boy. Oh my gosh, congratulations. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Are you going to get Sims 5? Is it even coming out? Yeah, I heard, saw it on Twitter. <gasps> they might be announcing something in October. Oh my oh, god, you guys! You need to start sharing our podcast so that we can make money off of it, and I can afford to get The Sims Five and all of its expansion packs. Yes, please do that for Erica's sake. She is a Simsaholic. I dabble in Sims once in a while. Um, she taught me how to do mods. 
So <laughs> we look and fly. Um, but yeah, that is the eyeball killer. And thank you guys so much for hopefully listening to the whole thing and not getting super grossed out by not only the eyeballs, but my like post-COVID voice, which is scaring me. For once, I'm not sick. Congratulations. It had to be one of us, though. I know. But continue following us on Instagram and subscribe on Apple and Spotify and YouTube. We do have some um, episodes on YouTube if that's, like, more your thing. More your um, yeah. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry it took so long. Yes, thank you guys for listening. Um, Let us know if this is the level of spooky that you're okay with for September, even though it's almost October. So Allison's next case is going to be even spookier, I hope. Get ready. And we need to find some good fall coffee for this next episode. So if you guys have any recommendations of what you're sipping on this fall, let us know. Yes, that would be wonderful. But we won't keep you because we know you're busy. We know we're busy. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next one.